Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Today we have another great guest on the show. Um, this is Dr. Devika Bhushan. Um, we'll get into a little bit of our funny connection from 15 years ago that we didn't even know that we had until recently. So I'll give her introduction, a little bio, and then we'll jump into the episode. Um, Dr. Devika Bhushan is a pediatrician and public health leader on a mission to drive health innovation, promote equity, destigmatize mental illness, and spread tools for resilience. As California's acting search general, 2022, Dr. Bhushan was a key advisor to the California governor and led policy and practice innovation at a statewide level by co-leading the launch of the ACEs Aware Initiative. Her expertise spans trauma-informed systems, stress and resilience, mental health, and gender and health equity, with work published in The Lancet, Pediatrics, NPR, and The Los Angeles Times. Dr. Bouchon trained at Harvard and Johns Hopkins and serves as senior advisor to entities that aim to advance health, innovation, and equity. She also leads a well-being community to spread evidence-based tools for resilience through a newsletter, YouTube channel, and podcast called Spread the Light with Dr. Devika B. Dr. Bhushan is an immigrant, a parent, and a first-generation Indian American. So stay tuned for this one. Uh, This was a quality episode talking about bipolar disorder and being an advocate for it and being quote-unquote out or self-disclosure as a physician with bipolar disorder. All right, enjoy. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. We've got a somebody I'm very excited to be talking with, Dr. Devika Bhushan. Uh, so we have a, a fun, fun connection we'll get into in just a little bit, but I'll let you introduce yourself first, and then we'll go from there. Sure. So my name is Dr. Devika Bhushan. As you mentioned, I'm a pediatrician, um, a public health practitioner, and I also live with bipolar disorder. So I'm sure we're going to get into all aspects of, of those identities um, in just a minute. It's yeah. great to be here. Oh, it's, it's, you know, it's my honor to have you on the guest. So, so that's cool. It was funny because you know, I reached out initially because I was like, oh, you're doing some advocacy and this is awesome. And I like always having docs with like lived experience and following them along. And then I saw that we have a connection from way back in my like pre-doctor life and i think we just saw your your husband was actually somebody yeah on camera we knew i knew him from like 14 years ago this goes into the whole like thing that salman knows everybody every brown person in the world which is you know we're, (laughs) we're, we're reinforcing stereotypes that all the brown people know each other but we actually do so and that was gonna be my first surprise question right so you just saw that we had met 1450, or we hung out 14, 15 years ago. What social media site did your husband convince me to join back then? Must have been Facebook. No, it was Twitter. The hellscape that is Twitter now. He was an early adopter of basically anything that is technological. And, you know, so that doesn't surprise me at all. He actually (laughs) also convinced me to have a Twitter account way back when the, when it first um, you know was possible, and I didn't use Twitter for probably a decade yeah. after opening that account. How about you? When did you get active? 
So it, very similarly, like I had like that initial kind of burst um, with with the sh- with your husband and then some of the other people were like, oh, this is kind of cool, a new social network thing. This will be yeah. fun. And then it kind of were like, all right, whatever. It just kind of died down a little bit. And then I think in the past couple of years, I kind of restarted to use it. And I was like, oh, this is actually like something that could be useful. And then Elon bought it and has destroyed it. <laughs> um, right. But, you know, it's 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 got a pros and cons and always depends on how you use it. Right. So that's true. That's true. Yeah. But that is really wild. So you you probably met Ashish around the same time I did. Right. Were you 08 as well? Oh wait, yeah. So oh wait, okay. I think I was saying like oh wait's when I left left America to go to the Cayman Islands to go to med school. Right. It was a, it was that summer before is like that when we kind of hung out and stuff. Got it. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, fifteen years ago, and it's wild because years, yeah. you know thinking back, Ashish and I met in two thousand four. Like oh, wow, okay. right after we got to college, probably the second week there. Yeah. Um, so that was nineteen years ago. Oh yeah. Right? And we actually didn't start dating right away. We had. A complicated sort of coming together story. Started dating in 2006, which now was 17 years ago. I mean, these are yeah. these are people that we've known for the majority of our adult existences. It's pretty. It's pretty cool. Yeah. No, I was like coming right up to this. I was like, when I was thinking about it, I was like, oh my god, that was 15 years ago. And I was right. like, this. I I like still remember like we had a great time that weekend and it was every. It was a good time. It was a good time. So, oh, I man. love that. Yeah. So it's a great connection. Small world, small world, but small you know, world. We make but it work. But we're meeting here for the first time, which is yeah, which really, is great. Really great as well. Yeah, so that's awesome. So, all right. So the reason we brought you on, right, for amongst the amongst the personal connection, right, um, is that like kind of like what you described. You said you're somebody who lives with bipolar disorder, and you've become very outspoken about it, or at least kind of opened, or at least self-disclosed about it. And I wanted to kind of talk about that because I think it's something that people don't talk about is physicians, docs with bipolar disorder, people in general with bipolar disorder don't always talk about it. So let's start with there. What was kind of your personal experience, your kind of bipolar journey per se? Yeah. So, you know, in a nutshell, my bipolar journey was that I had depression as a medical student with no prior symptoms of hypomania, mania, depression in the past. So I was 23. I had a really pretty rough summer where I was away from all of my contacts and supports. I was going through a series of really trying circumstances um, Mm -hmm. and just started feeling like I had never felt before, very out of body, couldn't sleep, didn't really know what to say or do, and um, just feeling very out of sorts. And I thought, you know, it's going to normalized when I get back home and it didn't, it got worse. And so um, so I went to see a psychiatrist at the urging of my family members who um, recognized that this potentially was was um, clinical depression, even when I hadn't. Because in my mind, I, I thought that I had to feel very sad and I didn't feel any sense of sadness. I just felt vacant and yeah. completely, you know, out of control. Um, and so, you know, diagnosed with depression, started on uh, routine antidepressant with an SSRI, which ended up um, triggering what in retrospect was clear hypomania layered mm-hmm. on top of the depression, which, was, which you know, was interpreted at the time to be depression plus anxiety, right? And yeah. over the course of about three years, um, I was trialed on 20 different um, antidepressants, many of oh which goodness. were activating many of which essentially didn't really work to 
addressed the core symptoms, made me, you know, cycle in and out of um, hypomania, hypomania plus depression, a mixed state. Um, And essentially at the end of those two and a half, three years, I was on three different activating meds at the exact same time. And those triggered a manic episode. Hmm. And it was such a blessing that I had that manic episode because all of a sudden it was very clear that my symptoms were on the bipolar spectrum. I would respond better to mood stabilizing medications than to antidepressants. And finally, I had my first hope in almost three years of seeing myself back again, getting my brain back, being able to finally do schoolwork um, in medical school, which, you know, I'd I'd started to feel like this is never going to happen for me. I might as well just drop out. This whole career path is not meant to be. And to finally sort of reclaim who I was on a personal side too, you know, we spoke about my husband at the outset of this and things were very rocky between us when we were um, still trying to figure out what was going on for me mental health wise. And I was symptomatic um, and, you know, getting well was such a blessing in so many ways, but we were able to finally come to a place where um, he and I were solid and we got married at the end of medical school, like a year after um, uh, I got to a good place from from a medical standpoint. And then thereafter, I was sort of, you know, naively entering residency thinking, I've got my regimen, I figured out what my what, di- what my diagnosis needs to be, I've got my, you know, non-medication strategies for staying well, um, and I can take anything. So yeah. I entered pediatric re- residency, actually pediatric neurology residency at nice. okay. Johns Hopkins, um, thinking, all right, bring it on. The same schedule that everybody else has in place. Let me just try on and and make and see if I can do it. And so, um, I, I you know I I, I had a, a couple of mood episodes in the context of day night switches, twenty eight hour calls. Which, in retrospect, um, you know we know that people with mood disorders and bipolar disorders specifically are very very sensitive to circadian rhythm shifts. Not that twenty eight right. hour calls are healthy or for good for anybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and that's something that I feel strongly we should be looking to undo, you know, in the medical training system that we have in the, in the U.S. Yeah. But for me specifically, like, you know, those were the the triggers for, for really severe mood episodes that required me to take overall five months away and um, to transition away from the pediatric neurology program that was, you know, set up for me into a general peds residency because um, I recognized that I could only do residency, you know, on a very um, slightly abbreviated schedule in terms of not doing those 28-hour calls and not doing right. the day-night flips. Um, and the pediatric neurology portion couldn't accommodate, um, you know, having having one of three residents not be able to hold pager at night, which uh, was fair yeah. enough at the time. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so I, I graduated from pediatrics residency and 2015 was actually my final episode um, ever since coming into a place in my life where, you know, professionally, I can have more control um, over my days and my nights and sort of the overall volume of work. Um, You know, subsequently, I was in academic pediatrics and then transitioned into public health and policy work, working at the state level in California at the Office of the California Surgeon General. Um, And all of those kinds of settings were ones where I could thrive and not worry about circadian rhythm shifts and have been able to to stay well um, through sort of intense professional, um, you know, 
requirements and and moments, but also through my first pregnancy and postpartum period, which happened two years ago. Okay, um, nice. But I'll yeah. pause there, and that's sort of my snapshot <laughs> of of my my bipolar journey. It's 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 a lot, right? Because yeah. um, I think you coming you're coming from this from like a very unique perspective in regards to as a medical student, right? And we we learn this stuff, right? Not we learn like we do your rotation on psychiatry and you're like, oh bipolar disorder. And we need to learn this stuff for the tests and the exams. Again, like people who may not know, like all medical students have to take the same board exam, you know, the same kind of general knowledge based on knowledge is there. So we rotate on stuff. We all have that exposure to stuff. And then kind of seeing it within yourself, kind of, uh, what do you think were some of the things that maybe were harder to see amongst yourself versus some of the patients that you may have come across during during your training? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that honestly, the only symptom that I was having difficulty kind of equating to the the learnings that we had was really my first episode of yeah. depression. But thereafter, like anytime I had any kind of mood fluctuations, I would usually be the first person to kind of tune in and understand and notice what was going yeah. on with the help of sort of therapy and family um, support and all of those kinds of things. But, but I will say like um, it was a really tough experience to go through um, as a medical student to become a patient in a very stigmatized context. And, yeah. um, you know, in training, both in medical school and in residency, I remember very damning statements from colleagues made towards patients of ours who had bipolar disorder, right? I oh, remember, absolutely. for instance, yeah. like, you know, coming in um, to get sign out on an overnight set of events and this patient had been admitted to to our service for a non-psychiatric reason, but also had bipolar disorder. And there had been an altercation overnight between, you know, the 17-year-old and her uh, roommate. And the way it was signed out to us was essentially, well, you know, you can't believe what this patient's side of the story because she has bipolar disorder. Uh. Um, and these sorts of statements of both sort of otherizing and marginalizing people with bipolar disorder and yeah. the fact that like, you know, this us versus them mentality that like no one within our inner circle could possibly carry that same diagnosis because it then carries with it all of these labels and stereotypes and judgments and assumptions about what kind of person you must be. Right. I think those sorts of um, implied uh, judgments really made it difficult for me to share my diagnosis with most of my colleagues through my yeah. training. Yeah. Um, and it made me feel probably more self-stigma and shame around the diagnosis because you internalize a lot of these assumptions that that are out there in the world that you hear verbalized around yeah. you. Um, and you feel less than. You feel like your symptoms and your episodes and and your illness is um, is something to be ashamed about. And it took me a long time to undo a lot of those assumptions and learnings. Yeah, it, it's really tough because we hear hear all this stigma towards the patients throughout all of medicine, right? Throughout all of like the training, 
even for like when I was going into psychiatry itself, like I remember, I vividly remember like I was, we're doing a surgical case. I was with the, um, you know, and the, the attending is just like, you know, bullshitting with, with me, the stupid med student. And it's like, oh, what are you going into? I was like, I'm planning to go into psychiatry. And he's like, why are you wasting your career? Why are you mm. wasting your training doing this stuff? Mm-hmm. And then like, even, you know, I, I say my, my wife is a nurse. She, she did a lot of stuff with like trauma patients, um, ortho patients. And now she does like more neuro stuff, but like, there'll be times where I'll hear over here, like her kind of talks and stuff. And they'll say things like, Oh, the crazy jumpers, they broke their legs again. And like, you know, the stuff that's like, uh, you know, that's not a cool thing to kind of say about your patients who obviously are going through something and they've had an attempt and they've jumped and broken their legs. You can't just be like the crazy jumpers, right? That's not okay to say. Right. Yeah. We, we really um, vilify and make fun of our patients. And I mean, Mm -hmm. even terms like chief complaint, right? Like we are, so, so for those who don't know when we write our notes, the thing that the patient is coming into you to get help with is labeled their complaint, right? So there's somebody who's just, you know, it it might be something very serious, but you know, it's labeled complaint and we often call patients poor historians, difficult, um, you know, dramatic, like there's all of these ways in which we, um, cast judgment on their experiences and um, create this very like judgmental us versus them mentality where they're caricatures and, and we get to laugh at them behind closed doors. And it's just, it's horrible. It is. And it's, it's one of like the the good things in a way that I like about the whole switch. There was like to the open notes. I think it was about a year ago. So now patients have access to their notes. They can look and see what kind of terrible things that we're writing about them. Um, And the reality is that like, you know, and I think there was, we were leading up to that. There was always like, you know, using patient centered language and Mm -hmm. not using stigmatized language for, I mean, obvious reasons, but you know, now, especially for the fact that everything is wide open now. So it's good. It's good to make those changes, right? We have to progress and change the field. So Good. It, yeah, it's slow in coming, but it's super, super ne- necessary. Yes. Um, actually, my colleagues and I at Stanford, when I was there in 2018 and 2019, we worked on a write-up, but also a workshop for you know medical professionals to to really understand the ways in which we stigmatize patients using the language yeah. that we do, and so both written language as well as verbal language, which is somewhat, sometimes where it shows up even more when we're doing yeah. these you know, informal sign outs and, um, you know, transitioning care from one team of doctors to another and created really a toolkit for folks um, to be able to check themselves. And, you know, we're in these very busy clinical contexts where we do rely more on heuristics and biases show up, um, you know, in in times where we're really stressed and busy and we don't have time to think, you know, broadly and be curious. But what are some of the very quick and easy ways you can sort of check yourself and help to destigmatize the language that's that's there about a patient because it it does influence not only how we perceive patients but the care that we provide. So there's yeah. really good data to show that, for instance, in sickle cell crises, you know, oh, yeah. when you when we use stigmatizing and patient judgy types of um, language in the clinical record, we tend to discount pain that is real and we tend to treat it less aggressively yeah. by as much as 25 percent 
Yeah, I, I, and you know, in a, in a kind of a self story, a, a shame on me when I was younger, kind of things like I remember, you know, hearing again I, I, when I was rotating through the emergency room. You know, I think for a lot of people don't understand also when we're psych residents, as interns, we rotate through the emergency room as well. And I remember taking care of a sickle cell patient. And they're like, oh, I'm 10 out of 10 pain. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, you're, you're eating Doritos right now. How can you be in 10 out of 10 pain, right? And like, I looking back now, I'm like, oh my God, how terrible and judgmental was I to even think that like, just because they're eating a bag of chips right now, like they they can't be in pain. Like, mm-hmm. and you know, I got reamed out and, <laughs> and yelled at for it, but rightfully so. But it is that aspect where exactly what you're saying is we have these biases that come through and, and show up, unfortunately. So, hey, all of us have biases, and for you to be able to recognize and you know relive that moment publicly yeah. and um, and talk through, you know, the fact that you feel like you're maybe incorrect in that moment is is huge. A lot yeah. of people can't do that. <laughs> you know, we, I think we all have like our moments in time, right? And in, in the training where we where we mess up and stuff. So it's all good. Coming back a little bit, um, I know we you talked about your initial journey being like, you said 20 medications over three years. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Right. I'm, I'm in my head. I'm like groaning. Cause you know, one of the things I preach over and over again is like, if the treatments that you're trying are not working, something's wrong with the problem, right? That meaning the problem is not right. Your target is right. wrong of what you're trying to get. Right. Talk about that. Cause I, I know. And then I think tying into that also like the idea of like hypomania versus mania. Cause again, like I'm, I'm a child psychiatrist, so I don't, most of my time as a child psychiatry and hypomania and, and mania is one of those hard things for people to kind of differentiate all the time. Yes. Right? Yeah. If you want to go into that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was diagnosed eventually with bipolar disorder NOS, which meant mm-hmm. not otherwise specifies. We weren't sure where on the bipolar spectrum I would end up. Um, and in the end, got the diagnosis of bipolar two disorder where most of my episodes are depressive. So like 70 to 80% of the time, that's what I show up with. And then 20 to 25% of the time, maybe um, I'll have a mixed quality to it, meaning I'll have a little bit of hypomania layered on top of that. But just to step back and sort of, you know, tell people what that means. So mania is is fairly obvious when it happens. Mania is this big flight in terms of um, sort of where you are in energetically, right? So you might be up for days, you will have racing thoughts, sometimes you'll go into um, sort of a break with reality. So you might have psychotic thoughts where maybe you think that um, the TV is speaking to you, um, it's giving you a certain kind of message, maybe you'll, you're the Messiah, right? And it's your job to save all of humankind from something that's coming. You know, you might have um, grandiosity is the word we use for it, where you just believe that you are invincible, you're amazing, you are this, you know, um, you you are God's gift to the human race. Um, and oftentimes, hypomania is much more subtle. So it's a little bit of an elevation. So you might have quicker thoughts, you might be interrupting people, um, but it can be harder to diagnose because it can present like anxiety. Um, or like irritability, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, um, you know, positive in terms of the way in which it, it is experienced. So, for instance, yeah. for me, most of my hypomanic periods um, since I was put on mood stabilizers have been dysthymic, right? So I don't enjoy being hypomanic. 
And yeah. as, as much as I don't enjoy being depressed. Right. And I think actually that's been part of, part of why it's been easy for me to sort of stay on course in terms of the treatment plans. Yeah. Um, but for me, dysthymic um, sort of um, hypomania has felt like just this, this like feeling of being on edge and revved up, but not being in control of my mind. Right. So I might yeah. start to read something and just not be able to make sense of it because my mind's flitting from place to place. I might really want to sit down and do something productive, but not be able to really have the focus um, to sustain more than like, you know, 15, 20 minutes of work on that thing. Um, yeah. Not be able to sleep well, be very, very short tempered with the people I love and care about and, and really feel like I don't have much of a control over that. So so you, it, you can see how, you know, that kind of thing, when somebody doesn't sleep for a few days and doesn't have bipolar disorder, they might have similar symptoms. And so it is much more um, of an art to diagnose hypomania, especially for the first time in somebody who doesn't have a family history of bipolar disorder and doesn't have their own known history of hypomania or mania, right? And to make yeah. that diagnosis for the first time when you're, you know, in that context of a medical student comes into you depressed and you give them antidepressants that seem just not to work. Um, it's a hard call to make. But one other thing I'll just kind of share with the viewers or, or listeners is it's not for nothing that on average, it takes 11 years to diagnose bipolar two disorder from the first yeah. symptoms to the point at which it's very obvious what the diagnosis is. And that is because hypomania is as potentially subtle as it was in my case. And I was lucky, right? Like three years is much less than the average of 11 years. And actually yeah. I'm working on a film um, called Brainstorm to really okay. help educate people, including in the primary care workforce um, around how you recognize early onset um, bipolar disorder, symptoms of hypomania to really try to prevent this 11 year tragedy um, yeah. that most people have to live through. I think you're right is that it, it is it can be very subtle right the hypomania aspect of things almost to the point where i, I know there's like s schools of camp or camps of thought that are like oh hypomania really isn't a thing mm -hmm. it's either you're either manic or you're not mm -hmm. manic and like mm -hmm. I, th I think when you were saying it before that like mania is very obvious right people yes. when you see mania or manic episode boom it, it hits you yeah. right in the face that's this is what it is and boom the diagnosis is made right and bipolar 2 hypomania begets this cyclothymia again these kind of like not quite manic episodes get kind of this rep of like it's not really a thing it's just someone's <laughs> just like a little bit happy or really happy and blah 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 blah, blah. and it's like it's not not quite there right it's 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 definitely there's something that's popping up there that raises some alarms here and there yeah, and then I think kind of also like what to your point when again what kind of what we were alluding to before like the twenty meds in three years is is a lot right it's it's the big aspect of of that how was how was that experience for you and how was kind of like your potential like frustrations or other things that may have come along with that honestly I felt like I was a failure because mm. um, I had something that was common and easy to treat yeah. depression plus anxiety right yeah. and a lot of med students experience these things a lot of people in general experience these things and so i was feeling like why am i failing each treatment that's being yeah. put on me why am i seeing just side effects and bizarre you know consequences from it that like i i don't know how to explain um and i felt the frustration honestly of my 
treatment team of like, why can't we get this person sorted out? Why can't we treat what's going on here? Um, I never, honestly, I never thought we have the wrong diagnosis until I had the manic episode. Um, And some people don't have insight when they have mania, but for me, for whatever reason, it was a controlled enough manic episode where I immediately was like, hallelujah, this is what we have going on. We need to, we need to get a mood stabilizer on board. Um, But what it was for me, like, honestly, those 20 different meds over three years, I remember coming back into clinical medicine, you know, because I I was in and out of school during those years. Um, But when I finally had the right diagnosis and the right treatments on board, not just medications, but also the behavioral um, treatments, which we can talk about, I remember going back in and feeling so much empathy for especially psych patients, but really any patients in any context who were going through really difficult experiences. And having had my own experiences with those 20 different meds and when somebody was on a med like that and they had a certain kind of a reaction to it, or, you know, they had withdrawal symptoms because they were being transitioned to something else. I mean, those were experiences that I had had myself and could, could supply some um, deeper level kind of of empathy um, around those experiences for patients. And I think in the end, it was a really, um, I wouldn't say, you know, that I, (laughs) that I'm glad I have bipolar disorder, you know, but yeah. those experiences really taught me to be how to walk through like really horrifically difficult things um, for the benefit of of the patients that I had and the people in my life after after that point. Yeah, it's one of those like you know, wish we didn't have to go through it, but looking back on it, I got something unintended almost in a way from it, right? So, yikes! Oh, it's 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 a process. Um, Definitely, and it's, yeah. How is it, so then coming back then, uh, you know, it's one of those things when we're coming into the world of being a doc and working as a physician and pediatrician, one of the questions, one of the concerns that people have, I guess, is when we fill out, you know, our licensing board questions, right? There's always that question that's on our state licensing question. Have you, or are you currently seeking mental health treatment or are you taking any medications that could potentially like alter your mind or something. I, I forget the exact wording, but they're always along those those questions. Yes. <laughs> Which is terrible, right? Because what ends up happening is it deters people from then seeking out mental health treatment and they'll lie in it and then they self-medicate with alcohol mm-hmm. and drugs and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? And, then, and this is why physicians have such high suicide rates is because they're forced to not seek help or yeah. lie about seeking help. Right. Talk about that a little bit, I guess, some of your aspect and then kind of how this led into your your self-disclosure as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, to lead with some of the facts, right, we know that depression is just as one example under the mental health condition categories. um, Depression is super common in medical trainees. So up to 30% of medical students will either meet criteria for depression or have significant depressive symptoms, according to two recent meta-analyses, but only one in six of medical students will be in treatment for their depression, right? And yeah. if you think about that, like in, in general, most, um, if you look at the adult population, more than 50% are uh, who have a, a diagnosable mental illness are not in treatment. But the the ratio for medical students is five out of six are not in treatment. Which that is, huge. is wild. 
Yeah. And then you go to residency and an additional 15% are going to be diagnosed with depression on as the, as the median. Um, and yes, like up until fairly recently, every, almost every state had very um, punitive and paternalistic um, in, you know, very inquisitive language around mental health um, in a way that was not on parity for physical health, even though if you have no. um, suboptimally controlled diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis, your cognition and judgment are going to be impacted. Yeah. Yep. Um, but, but, you know, we are not applying that same level of um, guilty until proven otherwise yeah. um, metric to having those conditions. Um, and so what's happened recently, though, with the Lorna Breen Foundation having been founded in the wake of um, a physician by the name of Lorna Breen who died by suicide, um, they've formulated a toolkit to help states rewrite their licensing regulations um, and questions to really fit a, a model of, of parity and of encouraging people to be able to seek the treatment that they deserve. And about 21 states, when I last looked a couple of months ago, had met criteria. So for instance, in California, um, yeah. we used to have a question on the licensing application, which had mental health um, considered differently from physical health. And now it is a, um, a common question. So it says, yeah. do you... Um, and it's more, and it's um, not phrased as categorically. It's more of like a potential um, impact rather than a, you know a definite impact. Yeah. Um, and we'll pull up the exact language to kind of give folks a, a flavor of that. But but what I will say is that we also, as physicians, don't have a lot of role models of people yeah. who are quote unquote out with their journeys and their stories around. Um, specifically serious mental illness like schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, or bipolar disorder. Um, when I was going through it, I didn't know of a single colleague who had a similar diagnosis, even though there yeah. must have been tons, you know, as many as 4.4% of the population will end up being diagnosed with bipolar one or two in their lifetimes in the US. So, you know, we are everywhere. We just don't know <laughs> yeah. that we're everywhere yep. because it's so stigmatized that people don't own up to it. And so, you know, as I was going through kind of my journey and I spoke about how, you know, I was able to figure out how to stay well 2015 onwards, um, part of my own recovery process was dissolving my own self-stigma around, around the diagnosis and starting to feel more and more comfortable disclosing my journey with people in my life, whether it was, you know, folks in my inner circle or beyond that, or in my professional life where, you know, at the state level, I was working on um, an initiative called ACEs Aware, where we were really helping to rethink the way the medical system deals with impacts of childhood trauma, right? And it felt yeah. very relevant um, to, to disclose sort of where I was coming from in those policy conversations. Um, and I started telling more and more people and it felt to me like, you know, as I was getting a better and better handle on who I was with the diagnosis and apart from the diagnosis, that it was a key piece of, of who, you know, I was becoming and who I had been. And also I wanted to do my part to start to dissolve the public stigma that there really exists around this diagnosis and, yeah. um, and to say, you know, while I was in the position of acting California Surgeon General that, hey, 
you can walk through a really, really, really complicated and difficult period of your life and really struggle from a mental health perspective and then still figure out how to build a life that you want in terms of sort of your career goals and your professional and personal um, ambitions um, and be a parent and be a partner who is loving and supportive and um, just really start to kind of dissolve the parts of the stereotypes that are out there associated with bipolar disorder. Again, knowing that I'm not the only person with this story, but to yeah. do my small part to to start to combat some of the stigma and the shame that exists around it. Yeah, it's, it's important because again, like you're saying is you need to know that people are out there that are succeeding because being a physician is tough. Being somebody with bipolar disorder can be tough, but these things, you know, are not mutually exclusive. Like they're not going to like keep you from doing what you're doing. Um, I mean, before you were kind of mentioning that it maybe have prevented or prevented you from kind of necessarily going into neuro, um, neurology. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like there's kind of that aspect of learning our limitations. I know I've had some patients who were medical students as well, who've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And, you know, we have a similar conversation to kind of what you're describing where I'm just like, you understand that this is part of what's, you know, this is part of the journey, right? This is part of what the medical student journey is, is like 24 plus hour calls and like doing night shift for a while. Is that going to be compatible with, you know, with your, this diagnosis and how do we go around this? How do we kind of come up with accommodations or, disclosure of this kind of thing to the school residency program etc so that we can stay as healthy as possible and like you know i think this one person not to kind of get too much not to violate any hippos or anything like that but like they'd wanted to do again like a, a intense kind of surgical um intense surgical training which would have involved similar to what you're describing like being on call for like a week at a time or two and like it just wouldn't have been compatible with with that lifestyle if they wanted to stay healthy as possible so i was like you know we have to really reconsider some of these things right yeah and it's not that you can't do the things that you really want to do in your life mm -hmm. right if i yeah. you know i mean as long as you are protecting your sleep you can do just about anything you put your mind to yeah. And I think that's also important for people to to know, you know, and, and to internalize. Sometimes you you get this diagnosis and you feel like, oh, life's over. All the no. things I thought I was going to achieve in my life, like, th let's take them off the shelf. No. But but you can actually do a lot once you figure out how to manage this disorder, just like any chronic health condition. Um, it doesn't have to get in your way beyond the kind of being really super careful around the circadian shifts. Yeah. Which is which is the key, right? It's it's one of the reasons like whenever I'm talking with any patients, I'm you know, I always ask about the sleep and they're always like, Why are you asking about my sleep? I was like, Because it matters. Yeah. It matters in everything. Everything, everything it impacts all the stuff that's there. Right. I remember actually on, on my psychiatry rotation in medical school, one of my attendings said, you know, sleep in psychiatry is like a fever is, you know, yeah. to an ID doctor. It it, yep. it is the first thing to sort of flare and then let us know there's something wrong and then we have to figure out what that is. Yeah. Talk also about like one of the other things that we share is that we're both brown people, right? So we're both <laughs> like um South Asians and then and and amongst our peoples, 
our hemisphere, part of the world, like mental health isn't talked about, right? We yeah. don't talk about it at all. Um, discuss that also, I guess, with some of that experiences as well. Right. You know, when I shared my journey publicly, um, as we had been speaking about, one of the ways I did it was in the LA Times. I wrote an op-ed and I got, I would say, an avalanche of responses um, from a lot of different kinds of people, but a big segment were South Asians, um, you know, in the diaspora as well as in South Asia, yeah. saying, hey, um, we need to talk about this more. And here's my secret story or my, my family member's secret shameful story that, you know, has never been told. Um, and of course, you know, as a brown person, I'm going to connect with um, and inspire people to share what they've been going through um, because it's it's a it's a similar community. But I will say, like, the stigma is deep and very strong in our community, um, yeah. regardless of sort of where you find yourself in the diaspora. Um, for instance, you know, I think it was only after I shared my story publicly that, um, you know, my parents have had conversations with their acquaintances around what this was like. Um, or I'll, I'll tell you, like, some of my in-laws cautioned me not to share my story because of what it might mean and mm -hmm. what it would and, you know, what it might lead to from a professional um, standing. Um, yeah. It, it's just it's just remarkable. And I think I think we have to we have to put ourselves out there and we have to have these conversations for that stigma that's so deep in our community to start to feel a little bit lessened. And it's it's among South Asians, like we we joke that we're like the gossip our culture is gossip, right? And backbiting and everything like that. That is the South Asian culture is talking shit about everybody. <laughs> but there's that aspect where like even the stigma within mental health so there's like the stigma with the mental health in America, mm -hmm. which is like pretty bad in itself, but then like it's so much worse, I feel like amongst South Asians and everything that comes along with that, you know, and, and it affects things like when we're doing family histories, right? You're yeah. discussing like, hey, nobody in my family history had anything like this. You may have, but nobody talked about it, right? You know, and, and similar like in my family, anybody else's family is like these things are there but nobody talks about it or they just get tucked away totally. in the corner. Like we don't, we're like, Oh, we don't talk about uncle, you know, the uncle, that uncle over there. Like, right. we don't know what happened with them, which is something, something. Right. 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 So, which is trouble because you know, it affects planning for future and our own kind of health, health histories and what's going on with ourselves. So potential yeah. things. So, yeah, absolutely. With this too, like, I mean, you had talked about, being a parent with bipolar, um, being a new mom, right? Or a couple, a couple of years at least now, yeah. right? And, you know, I just had my number, baby number four and with wow. like now she's six months, six plus months old now. Congratulations. So I was like, thank you, thank you. So it was like one of those things where I was like, oh, we forgot about the sleep. We forgot about the fact that like right. <laughs> everything right. gets destroyed. What's, yeah. What is that that like? And then kind of the discussion around that. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked about that because, you know, I think with bipolar in specific, um, you often get the message that 
you can't stay on your meds. You can't, you know, um, you can't make it through a pregnancy in a postpartum period without falling ill again. And I was definitely very terrified. Yeah. The two things, the two keys were staying on the, the regimen that we had figured out was going to be safe through the pregnancy, which for me was the same as the regimen I was on for, you know, the rest for several years before my pregnancy. Yeah. Number two was sleep protection, right? And so for that reason, I made the decision not to breastfeed at all, which which meant that the second I gave birth, I could start to sleep eight-hour nights. Um, and that was really essential for staving off a postpartum episode. Yeah. Um, and we also, we also made it um, a priority to set aside funds um, and hire a um, postpartum doula, like a nighttime person whose yeah. responsibility would be to stay up with our baby um, and and feed him and um, get him back down so that I wasn't, you know, overburdening the other people in our unit, right? So my yeah. mom came and spent two months with us um, and then my husband as well. Um, but after my, you know, our son was um, sleeping through the night, we, we had the concerted, um, you know, conversation and decision that Ashish, my husband, would be sort of the night on call person. So anytime Rumi, our son, gets sick and you know needs extra attention at night, Ashish is on call. He does the mornings as well. You know, I put Rumi down at night so that Ashish, Ashish can usually um, you know fall asleep earlier um, to be yeah. able to you know be available at the at the times that he's needed. But we figured out you know a way to really make sure that both of us are getting enough sleep um, around you know not just postpartum, but really like early parenthood, which is um, such a crucial time in everybody's life. Yeah. 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 It, it's, it's massive just because I think, you know, you need to have that support system, right? I think you're kind of, you're kind of mentioning having the support system there because a lot of times, you know, when we have people who are going through pregnancy, having a baby and, you know, bipolar disorder that's there. And they're like, well, what do I do? Do I need to just, again, the, there's so much just kind of misinformation and myths out there about like, you need to stop all of your medications. And right. there's so many times in training that we would have a, a pregnant individual come through and they're manic, floridly manic or psychotic or something or other depressed, terribly yeah. depressed. Yeah. And it's because again, somebody told them, a family member told them, a friend done here and there. So they read on Facebook that they need to be off the medications. Right. And you get these terrible outcomes and you're like, no, no, like the medications can be safe. You just have to be aware and just watch out for stuff. And for the most, you know, overwhelming majority of the times, like nothing will happen, nothing terrible will right. happen. Right. Um, but it's just kind of having the team there, right? That support system, which is so, so important. Well, let's do um, one last question. Let's talk about kind of the difference. I know we talked about stigmas and diagnoses. I know I've been very open about the fact that like I have ADHD and mm -hmm. that's like an okay, it's a cool, trendy thing to do. Bipolar disorder is not always kind of seen the same way. So yeah. talk about that like just a little bit about like how maybe your self-disclosure is not quote unquote, as cool as other people's, right? Yeah, you know, I think um, more of the people that I know with ADHD are open about it than the people that I now yeah. know who have bipolar disorder. Um, most of them are closeted. And that's not for, yeah. you know, no reason, right? There are, there are deeply stigmatizing beliefs that people hold about those of us with bipolar disorder. And so... Coming out and saying, hey, I have this condition, um, 
can be a little bit harder when that's the case. Um, at the same time, the only way stereotypes shift is when you see enough, you know, examples of folks that you think maybe don't conform to those stereotypes who have the diagnosis. Um, and then you build sort of a more three-dimensional view of what that condition can look like. Um, and we know just, you know, from the literature that the only thing that dissolves stigma on the grand scale, um, scale is meaningful contact between those who do have lived experience and those who don't, right? So that people can start to understand the nuance and context around different people's stories. And so, yes, it's in some ways sort of more scary and um, less so-called cool to 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 share a story around a stigmatized condition, but I think that it is in some ways more needed and more meaningful to do so as well. And the number of people that that said, you know, I've never met somebody with this diagnosis um, in my walk of life, um, specifically within the medical community and the public health community, um, were not insignificant. And so I'm really thankful that yeah. I was able to do it. Cool. Last mm -hmm. quick question. What mm -hmm. is your your self-care? Because what yeah. we know is always so, so important. I do, I do a lot of things. Number one, of course, is guarding my sleep. So in the evenings, I put on amber glasses, which, you know, block blue <laughs> light, which are the wavelength of life of light that wake the brain up and make you think it's daytime. And so that's really helpful. I mean, that's one thing I do. I have a very sort of um, uh, usually try to go to bed at a, at a reasonable hour every day. I um, protect my sleep um, in the ways we talked about around the baby being tended to by my husband overnight and in the early morning. Um, and then, you know, exercise is key. I like to get in at least um, 45 minutes to an hour's walk several, time, several times a week. Um, I spend time being mindful. I spend time connecting with the people in my life who are important to me. Um, I spend a lot of time actually decompressing and resting and having downtime, especially because my professional weeks can be pretty go, go, go. There's a lot of self-disclosure. There's a lot of speaking. Um, there's a lot of uh, sort of high intensity, energetically um, costly types of activities. And so I spend a lot of time also thinking intentionally about blocking time for decompressing and rest and recuperation. Um, so all of that together sort of gives me the day-to-day -day stability that I need. Awesome. Good, good, good. Well, I know that we got to wrap up, but how can people follow along with your journey? Any plugs Absolutely. that you have? Um, so the best way is I have a weekly newsletter, which really focuses on well-being insights, um, which is askdrdevikab.substack.com. Um, I also have a monthly podcast um, and YouTube channel um, experience around sharing stories of mental illness, which is called Spread the Light with Dr. Devika B. And we can share some of the links to um, both the podcast version and the YouTube yep. channel um, with you all. But I would say those are the, the two best ways to do it. It's been a pleasure to be here with you. And I really appreciate your giving me such a um, wonderful set of questions and having me on here. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's my honor, and again, I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, you're so valuable out there in the field, and so keep doing what you're doing. And thank we appreciate you. Same you. to you. Thank cool. you for everything that you do.